For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, be, to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that, we, that, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for, we, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we've been in a series of messages entitled Our Future Glory because really the amount of confusion that surrounds eschatology. That's your 25 cent word for today, right? Eschatology. The doctrine, you know, the Bible has all kinds of doctrines in it. The doctrine of God, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, salvation. One of those doctrines is eschatology. It comes from the Greek, two words, eschatos means last things, and logia is the study or the word of, so it's the study of last things. It's all those things associated with the second coming of Christ, with what happens to us when we die. Uh, heaven right now, heaven in eternity for the eternal state. Uh, things like the tribulation and, and all the events surrounding the book of Revelation and, and the world to come. This is eschatology. And there's a lot of confusion about eschatology. Much of this confusion, honestly, frankly, is because of a system of teachings and doctrine that arose in the 1800s. It became very popular during that time. Uh, it really has influenced American evangelical Christianity. I guarantee you, if you are a Christian who has been a Christian for at least a decent length of time, raised in churches that believe the scriptures, you've been influenced by this teaching. And there's a lot about it that's good, but there's a lot of it that is off base. And it's created questions, creates anxiety and, and uh, you know, curiosity. Uh, we want to know certain things because of this. We want to know whether we should be preparing for the second coming of Christ. You know, should we be preparing for a tribulation and an antichrist? And you know, last week I talked about the resurrection, and it was clear that some of you still had questions about, well, do I get taken off the earth and raptured, or do I stay? I mean, what's going on? And, and, and so we have all these kinds of things we want to know. We want to know, I think all of us want to know what the book of Revelation means, right? I mean, what does that, there's all kinds of symbols. We want to know what the book of Revelation means. We want to know, are we going to be here for the tribulation? Is there actually going to even be a tribulation? There's all kinds of things that we want to know, that we like to know within the study of eschatology. But I got to tell you, church, um, don't expect the Bible to fill in all of your questions with minute details. Doesn't happen at all. In fact, as a, as a kind of, if you don't mind, as a pastoral warning, um, in the silence of Scripture, where it does not fill in those details, I would encourage you not to fill in those gaps and those details by relying upon modern books that are based upon the personal experience of someone who dies and goes to heaven and comes back, for example. 
Um, There's an entire genre of Christian literature now. It's called heavenly tourism, right? Uh, I think it might have started with that book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Uh, And Kevin and Alex Malarkey was last name, and there's some irony in that last name. Okay. Interestingly, to his credit, Alex Malarkey, the young man who wrote this and, and had these things and envisioned all that, uh, as he became a teenager, he got a hold of a Bible and he started reading the scriptures, started going to church, started listening to the proclamation of the gospel. He actually became a believer and was converted and has written a complete recantation of that entire book. He has written to the Christian publishers that are putting it out and has asked them to stop printing it because it was all made up. He said, I did it to get attention. Um, We have to be careful in the silence of scriptures not to rely upon heavenly tourism genre and last things fiction genre. Too many Christians have their theology about eschatology based upon the Left Behind series of books. Don't ask me what I think about those books. You will not like my answer. They're entertaining, but that's about it. So be careful, church. Be careful. As books in these genres are produced, I want you to understand that God does speak to us, but he speaks to us through his word. And while there are many things that we will not know until later on when the events actually occur, God loves us, and there are some things that we can know right now, and he reveals it in his word. We just have to be satisfied that all of our questions are not going to be answered. He's going to leave some mystery here. You know, our passage is one of those places where God does shed light on what is to come. He sheds light on what is to come. He tells us in this passage of Scripture that there are some things that we need to know. There are some things that we should know about our future judgment. There are some things that we need to know about our current earthly reality. But if you begin in verse 1, God makes it clear, and Paul through the Apostle Paul, that we need to know how powerful our hope is and how motivating our hope is because of what Jesus teaches us concerning the resurrection. Last week, we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and we looked at the subject of our future resurrection. That great truth that one day when Jesus returns at the second coming of Christ, all of us are going to be caught up together. Some of us will be resurrected. Those of us who are not yet dead, we will be changed. This is where we get this word rapture from. But essentially what it is, is it's the resurrection. It's the recreation of this world, the restoration of all things. This happens at the second coming of Christ. And once again, in 2 Corinthians... Paul is bringing us back to this fundamental truth of the scriptures. Uh, The context of this passage is important. You know, we picked up in chapter 5, verse 1, but it's actually part of a larger section, and, and I think personally, 
uh, back in chapter 4, verse 7, in that area where it's really kind of keying in, that we get some of the, the most beautiful poetical language that Paul uses outside of the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. If you, if, if you go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, this is what he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Think about what was behind the writing of these words. Here's the Apostle Paul who has been on several missionary journeys. He has experienced homelessness, He's been robbed by criminals. He knows what it's like to be cold, to be hungry. He was shipwrecked, for crying out loud, and thrown into the ocean, bit by snakes. He was arrested numerous times. He was beaten within an inch of his life by the governmental authorities on more than one occasion. On more than one occasion, citizens in a town got so angry at him, they stoned him, one point apparently even to death, and the Lord allowed him to be brought back to life. And ultimately, of course, he spends time in a Roman prison and he loses his head as a martyr for Jesus Christ. Yet in spite of all of the opposition and tribulation, Paul presses on. Why? What drives a man to do this? It's because he knew something that was so important that it changed the direction of his life and how he lived his life. It's here in chapter 4, in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. You see, the, the truth of the resurrection so affected the Apostle Paul, it changes the direction of his life. It changes how he lives life and sees life. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. How do you describe what he has been through as light, momentary affliction? Yet when your perspective is shaped by the truth of God's word and the beauty of this promise that we will be resurrected, it changes how we see the very trials and tribulation of life. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul found motivation and encouragement and hope in the promise that God has given us. He is preparing for all of us a better life. He's going to resurrect us. He's going to restore us. He's going to recreate this world. He's going to make all things new. And this affects how we look at life. It motivates us. It gives us hope. In chapter 5, verse 1, in our text, Paul begins by illustrating this truth and drawing upon his vocation as a tent maker. And as a tent maker, he takes this metaphor and he says, there are some things that you need to know. 
You need to know that your tent is wearing out, he says. The tent is the metaphor for what? Our life, our body, our flesh and bones. And he says, our tent is going to wear out, but God is going to replace it with a perfect body. Last week we got into this more. We won't recover that ground today, but if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go to the message as we looked at this idea of what is our body going to be like? This, this resurrected body, if we want to understand it, the, where we start is we look to Jesus and his resurrected body, and we can see what the future has in store for us. But beginning in verse 2, Paul brings this idea of, of how the resurrection should change us and give us a motivating hope. As we dwell upon it, it changes how we interact. In verse 2, he says, In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. This word groan here is not the groaning of our adolescence when they don't like what we say. All right? This isn't, it's not that kind of groaning. It is the groaning of anticipation. It is the groaning for, for forgive me for yet another f- steak analogy, okay? But have you ever had a meal and it's being prepared and you can smell it, you can see it, and it's right there and you haven't eaten it yet? And what do you physically do, right? Right? You, you kind of, uh, there's anticipation. You might make a little sound, especially if you're a carnivore, a hardcore carnivore, right? You might, uh, yeah, this is good. And you're anticipating, you're, you're, you're physically, you're groaning. It's not a groan of resentment. It's a groan of anticipation. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. Now remember the metaphor, clothing, his tent, and he's talking about this life, this flesh and bones. He's saying, we don't groan to die, to be unclothed. We don't have an unhealthy desire to die. You know, I think all of us, if we had our druthers between, you know, being resurrected, dying and being resurrected, or living until Jesus comes and being changed, most of us would probably choose option B instead of option A, Right? And Paul certainly wanted that. He wanted to, and he expected to be alive until Christ returned. But if he didn't, he knew that he'd be resurrected. He says, we, we don't groan to be unclothed. We don't have an unhealthy desire to die. We don't have a morbid fascination with death. But we do groan looking to that day when we would be further clothed, he writes, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27, Paul tells us this idea of groaning as replayed again. He says in Romans 8, 18 to 27, three different types of people or categories are groaning. Creation is groaning. The scriptures tell us it's groaning, looking, waiting for the return of Christ and the redemption of humanity because creation knows that on that day, it's going to be recreated and all things are going to be made new and everything that is wrong in creation right now because of sin is going to be rolled back and corrected through the power of God. Creation groans in Romans 8. Believers groan. We groan, waiting for that day. And the Bible says even in that passage, the Holy Spirit groans with us. 
bringing to our petitions to our Heavenly Father. Church, we need to know some things this morning from this passage, and we can know some things. We can know that God has promised that we will live forever, and that death is not going to have the final word. This promise, it provides us with a constant motivating hope. We also need to know, he says, getting in verse 5, we need to know something about our current earthly reality. Our current earthly reality. You know, in this fallen world as Christians, we must live and serve God, understanding that there is a tension, a fundamental tension in place that is unavoidable. Our fleshly experience our flesh and bones right now. This earthly realm that we live in, it is passing away. We can't escape the reality of this fallen world. We cannot escape the reality of the pain that sin brings into this world and into our lives. We cannot avoid it. We have to live and serve God, embracing this tension. But at least that's one response. Uh, you know, many people respond to this tension in a different way. They, they respond by actually clinging more tightly to this earthly realm. But church, when we do this, the fruits are devastating. When we cling too tightly to this earthly realm as we go through tribulation and trials and persecution, what ends up happening in our lives is the fruit is defeat, discouragement, it's bitterness towards God. It's anger at God. It's doubting the goodness of God. When these things are happening in our lives, it's because we are holding on to the earthly things rather than those things which are eternal and real. To use the language of chapter 4, we're holding on to the transient and the temporal instead of the things that are eternal and real. That's one way to respond to the tension that we live in in this world. And then there's Paul's way. You know, Paul, as he experiences these things, all this pain, this tribulation, death and deprivation, it did not defeat him. It did not sour him. It did not turn him against God. It did not discourage and depress him. Instead, he became bolder for God. How does this happen? That's why verses 5 to 9 are so important. I, in fact, I want you this morning, if you would, if you have a pen or something, I'm gonna, we're going to walk through verses 5 to 9, and there's five phrases that I'm going to have you underline. Because these five phrases, they help us to experience our current reality in a way that matures us, that it grows us up as men and women of God, and it also helps us to glorify God and bring comfort to our souls. He says in verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I want you to underline the phrase Spirit as a guarantee. Spirit as a guarantee. That word guarantee comes from the Greek word arabon, and it means a security deposit, a, a down payment, so to speak, a first installment. The word is used today in modern Greek, and it's the equivalent of our phrase, engagement ring. So if you're Greek today, you're gonna, you give your, your guys, you give your fiance an autobone, an engagement ring. So the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, is our engagement ring. He is our down payment. He's the first installment. What's he getting at here? 
He's saying, listen, our current, you need to know something about our current earthly reality. God has given us his Holy Spirit to help us navigate the days that lie ahead of us. This spirit groans with us. He groans with us. He matures us. He empowers us. His name is the Comforter. He will comfort our hearts and our souls as we face travail and tribulation, if we lean into him. We need to know that we have this at our disposal. Secondly, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Underline, good courage. Good courage. Paul says that we need to know something. We need to know something so we can be filled with courage. Let me ask you a question. What's the opposite of courage? Fear, right, exactly. What would you say most people, that is common, universal to humanity, what would you say is the greatest fear of most people? Yeah, death. I find that for most people, the thing that brings the most fear into their life, the most anxiety and tension and worry, is the conversation to do with death. I do funerals for folks, and it's interesting. You can see that there are many people that will be in the audience. They are as nervous as a, as a, you know, a, a cat that's had its tied, tail tied to another cat and thrown over a clothesline. Had to get a cat reference in there somehow, right? right? And they don't like the idea of it. Not at all. Death. Okay? Death. We're afraid of death. But here's the thing. Paul says that we need to know something. As believers, we don't have to fear death. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. At death, we don't have to face God as the angry judge who pours out his wrath upon our sin. By dying on the cross for our sins, by rising from the dead, Jesus has addressed our sin problem. And what is the sting of sin? It's death. In defeating sin, Jesus has defeated death for us. So we don't have to be afraid of the very thing that most people are most afraid of. And this changes our current existence, right? When your greatest fear is conquered, you're free to be radically courageous and bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't this the testimony of Paul, right? I mean, here's Paul who is arrested numerous times. He's brought before provincial governors, uh, Roman governors. He's brought before Caesar himself and religious leaders, all men in power who had the power of life and death over his physical body. And how does Paul respond? Is he quaking and quavering in fear? Absolutely not. Paul boldly stands before these audiences and he proclaims the truth of God's word unhesitatingly unwaveringly filled with boldness and power and courage. Why? He didn't have to fear death. If your greatest fear has been conquered, what is there on this world that should hold us back? Absolutely nothing. If, if death has been, has been defeated for you, why be afraid of that guy in the office next door? Why hesitate to talk to a neighbor 
and give them the love of Christ and give them the, the word of God and the truth of the gospel? Why, why should we even be nervous about it? Because the greatest thing that humanity can be afraid of has no hold on us. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Underline, walk by faith. Walk by faith. You know, at the end of chapter 4, as we read a second ago, Paul says, we look to things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. The unseen is real. The seen, the seen world that we are in, it's transient, it's temporal. So we're to look at those things that are unseen. This is what faith is all about. I, I like how Dr. Sandy Wilson describes and teaches and defines faith. Dr. Wilson says that faith is being so deeply convicted of the reality of something that your eyes do not behold at that moment in time. Faith is being deeply convicted of the reality of something that your eyes do not behold at that moment in time. This is building off of Hebrews chapter 11. You're, you're so convicted, so convinced by this that you set your mind on that thing and you live your life in that direction. That's how real it is. That's faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with the stories of men and women of God who lived their life in the direction of something that could not be seen with the physical eye. But it was so real to them, they ordered their entire life in that direction. And that's what motivated them. This is faith. This is what he says. We walk by faith, not by sight. When we remove the fear of death, and we replace it with the vision of faith. The fruit of this is courageous men and women of God who are bold and who go hard after the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the Lord, uh, excuse me, we would rather be away from the body <laughs> and at home with the Lord. Underline the phrase, we would rather we would rather. Hey, can I ask you a question, church? Is the truth of this passage, of this verse, is it true for you? Is it true for you that you would rather be with the Lord than at home with the body? Or is it one day, Lord, but not yet? One day, Lord, I want to be with you, but not yet. I have to, you know, just in all candor, in all honesty, depending upon the day I'm having, the answer to that question is not good. And there have certainly been plenty of times in my life, wide periods of time in my life, where I would say, no, not yet. Not yet. I got things I want to do here on earth. I got things I want to accomplish. I got plans, right? How about you? Is it not yet, Lord? You know, and actually, here's the thing. Uh, you know, there is a legitimate not yet, Lord. Scriptures tell us this. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I would love, he says, to be united with my Lord. He says, but, you know, it's, it's better for me, it would be better for me to, to be with the Lord. And then he uses this great expression, in the original language, he says, it's more better. Sorry, Valerie. 
English lady. I know more better is not good language, but Paul does it, so it's divinely inspired in this case. He says, it's more better for me to stay here. It's more better for not yet. It's better for me to be here. Why? Because God wants me to bring you the gospel. God wants me to minister to you, to build you up into men and women of God for his glory. And so while it would be better for me to be with the Lord, it's more better for you for me to be here. And so there is a legitimate reason for us to say, not yet. There is a legitimate reason. Hey, what's yours? What's your not yet? What's the reason behind the not yet? I would suggest that any reason that's behind our not yet, anything that's other than serving someone who is in need, bringing them to Christ, bringing them to restoring power of the gospel, building them up to maturity, any reason for the not yet that is not in that circle of explanations is an idol. And that idol will ultimately be the source of fear and discouragement and defeat, especially when tribulation and trials come. Verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Last phrase to underline, aim to please Him. The scriptures tell us that we have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And bringing us to faith. You know, God ordained before the foundations of the world our salvation, but the scriptures also says that before the foundations of the world, he ordained that we would fulfill and carry out good works to be instruments in his hands to build his kingdom, to bring him glory. We've been redeemed. We are here on this earth for this very reason, to serve him, to bring about good works. In our, in our ministry, we talk about what it means to be a discipleship and certain, a disciple, and certainly what we experience this morning in worship is an integral part of being a disciple as we worship God corporately and then throughout the week. But also, let's not forget that being a disciple of Jesus Christ means serving his body, giving our lives for his kingdom. As Jonathan talked a few moments ago, engaging with the opportunities that are around us to bring the gospel to the nations in our own backyard and around the world. This is what God has ordained for us, good works. And this leads us to the last thing that we have to know. Verse 10 our coming future judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. For all of humanity, every person, if we die before the Lord comes back, we will all face an initial judgment. But this judgment that we face at the point of death is different than the judgment that's mentioned in verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment that we face at death, one way of referring to it, is called the judgment of faith. 
This judgment that we experience at death determines our eternal home. The judgment of faith determines our eternal destiny. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 26, but now, once for all time, Jesus has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came once already to deal with all of our sins. And for those who have trusted in Christ, at the point of death, at the judgment of faith, the verdict of God is not guilty. Jesus has already been declared guilty in our place. The verdict of God is not, depart from me, ye cursed, into eternal punishment, because Jesus has already been punished in our place. For the Christian, we don't have to fear the judgment of faith. Our sins have already been paid for. We've been brought into the family of God. We have been promised the glories of heaven, whatever that may look like right now, with all the questions that we have. But for those of you who have yet to commit your life to Christ, the story is different. Your sins have not been paid for. The wrath of God would become out upon your sin. For the person who's rejected Christ, standing before him means an eternity of paying the penalty of those sins. And if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ, understand that the wages of sin, it's death, it's eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You do not have to stand before God as judge. You can come before God as a father who declares that you are righteous. For the Christian, we don't have to fear the judgment of faith. All who are in Christ are guaranteed eternal life. But we will face a different kind of judgment. And this is what verse 10 is getting at. It's a judgment of our works, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I got to tell you that in my childhood and even in my teen years, this verse scared the bejeebies out of me. Okay, that's a technical word in the Greek, bejeebies. Because here's what... what I was taught, and you know, that Christian genre, there, there used to be these things called Christian comic books. They were pretty lame, to be honest with you. But as a kid, I remember reading a Christian comic book about the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what that Christian comic book said? And what a lot of uh, sermons I heard said about the judgment seat of Christ? In some way, we're going to come before Jesus, and our entire life is going to be like a big movie screen. Everything we ever did is going to be on display for the entire universe. Your mama is going to see what you were doing. How humiliating is that going to be? How embarrassing that the entirety of humanity will see every one of your sins as you come before the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to understand that is not what the judgment seat of Christ is about. 
For the Christian, the judgment seat of Christ is a day of commendation, not condemnation. Read that with me. For the Christian, the judgment seat of Christ is a day of commendation, not commendation. The Bible tells us, the gospel says that all who are in Christ, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Christian, the final judgment will be a day of revelation and reward. It will be a time where the Lord Jesus evaluates and critiques our works for him. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 an example of what this will look like. Paul says anyone who builds on that foundation of Jesus and serves him, he can use a variety of materials. You can use gold, silver, and jewels, or you can use wood, hay, or straw. You can see the qualitative differences, right? He says, so in our service of God and how as we serve the Lord, we have a choice of how we're serving him and the motives and, and the energy and, and everything that's involved in serving the Lord. He says, but on the judgment day, Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So there's coming a day when our work will be evaluated. And church, this is a day of grace. You know why it's a day of grace? Because if I'm honest with myself, the pervasiveness of sin is so deep within the human condition, I don't know if there isn't one work that I've ever done for Christ that wasn't in some way tainted by sin. Can any of us ever say that we perfectly serve God? Of course not. Because that's the pervasiveness of sin. Yet, we will still get reward Somehow, this is going to wash out in the end. Our motives are going to be checked. There's going to be, you know, God knows our hearts when we do things. But listen, there's all kinds of ways we can approach service. But the point of this judgment seat is we will receive rewards. We will receive, receive commendation. And so it's to motivate us. Be vigilant, be diligent, serving our Lord Jesus Christ depending upon the Holy Spirit, doing it for His glory and faith, humbling ourselves before Him, making ourselves available to Him, allowing Him to work through us. And when these things happen, the Bible says we store up reward. This judgment seat of Christ, it's a day of commendation, not condemnation for the Christian, but for the non-Christian, the non-believer. The final judgment will be a day of evaluation and despair. This day is talked about in Revelation chapter 20, where John says, I saw the books opened, the book of life was opened, death and hell and the grave, everyone came before God, and everyone whose name was not written in the book of life. That's the critical expression. In other words, those who have not trusted in Christ, their name is not recorded as one of God's children. Their works are evaluated. The quality of their, the depth of their evil is judged. And then punishment is put forward in light of the depth of that evil. It's a sobering phrase. It's a sobering passage of Scripture. 
Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This vision of eternal judgment, it is to sober us. It is to bring us to mind that there is coming a day where we will stand before our Creator. Will you stand before your Creator as an accepted child of God who is trusting in Jesus Christ, or will you stand before your Creator as an individual who's relied upon self and now must pay the price for that pride? My prayer is that you know Him. Lord Jesus, would you work in the lives of those who are here this morning? For the one who may not know you, I ask that you would draw them to your Son, that you would open eyes and hearts to the knowledge of what is right, that you would help them to see their own need for a Savior. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, use us as your people. Lord, would you pour your grace upon us? May we be that bold, courageous church has no fear of death, has no fear of man, has no fear of, of political systems, and no fear of the future, but instead boldly, courageously steps out to serve you. Give us the grace that we need to be those people, Lord Jesus. For your honor, I ask this. Amen.